I'm gonna float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. George can't hit what his eyes can't see. All of you chumps are gonna bow when I whip him. All of you, I know you got him. I know you got him picked, but the man's in trouble. I'm gonna show you how great I am. Bluffed him, I done everything. Beat him up, basically, for about five or six rounds. I thought it was easy. Then about the sixth round, he whispered in my ear after I'd hit him in the side, that all you got, George? When you were a kid, you always bet certain fellas, I'm going to be champion one day, and when I'm champion, I'm going to come back and show you I'm wrong. Another said, guys, I'm going to be a great doctor one day, and I'm going to be a dentist, I'm going to be a great scientist, I'm going to be a president of the country. And But very few people actually are able to make good of the boats and come home and say, I told you. Thank you for joining the Walt Weekly Podcast. And this week's episode, the Walt Weekly celebrates Black History Month. I'm here with Kena Parham, who's our backup for Michelle Sweeney, who's getting prepared for New York Fashion Week 2024. And we're also here with Miss Bridget Stokes, North Carolina's one and only. And today what we want to do is we want to talk about historic people slash events and each one of us is charged with you know presenting you with some history and if it's somewhat liberal you know nobody's constrained to what we have to do but you know everybody had their choice of topics or persons or events that they're going to cover so of course since i have seniority and i'm in charge i am going to start first and my choice is muhammad ali so I just want to talk about, because he had an effect on my life, all right? But I want to give you a little bit about his, uh, his early life, all right? And Muhammad Ali was born at Cassius Masilas Clay, Jr., on January 17, excuse me, 1942 in Louisville, Kentucky. And he began boxing at the age of 12 after his bike was stolen, and he wanted to learn to defend himself. All right, later on, Ali won a gold medal in the light heavyweight division of the 1960 Summer Olympics in Rome, whereby he showed his talent on the international stage. And shortly thereafter, Ali became a a professional. And he turned professional shortly after the Olympics and quickly made a name for himself with his unorthodox butterfly, singing like a bee style. Very charismatic guy. Very, very charismatic. I think that's why I fell in love with him. And he became the heavyweight champion in 1964, when he fought Sonny Liston in a major, major upset. I remember this very distinctly. This is my first, my first time seeing him and listening to him. I was like nine years old, eight years old. And I mean, really, I was just astonished that we had a black man like him, and especially during civil rights. That was, we were heavy civil rights people at that time. We were really working on civil rights. We were marching, we were protesting, we were throwing rocks and bottles. But Ali comes along and he he gave us, you know, hope that we were black people. You know, I'm black and I'm proud. I'm black and I'm pretty. That's what Ali did. I never forget when he fought Sonny. Listen, my uncle and my grandma raised me. But I had a bunch of uncles. You know, she raised a lot of kids. And my uncle was saying, "Uh, 
I don't like our lady. He can't be sending listen. Sending listen is going to kick his. But I said, no, nah, I don't know about that, Uncle. But Ali took him down, and that was one of the happiest days in terms of sports that I've had in my life. And shortly after winning the championship, Ali converted to Islam and changed his name from Cassius Clay, which he called his slave name, to Muhammad Ali. Another thing Ali was noted for, and I think that's what made him the greatest of all time, that he went against the, the government. He stood up to the government when they wanted to draft him until the Vietnam War. But Ali was known for his stance against it. He didn't want to do it, citing religious reasons and refusing to be drafted into the military service, which led to his arrest. They stripped him of his boxing titles, and they banned him. In the prime of his boxing career, they banned him for four years. But that didn't stop Ali. He came back with the rumble in the jungle, where he fought George Foreman. And I was scared for him. I tell you, this is in the 70s. I was scared for Ali. I mean, I saw George Foreman fight people. One punch, he would knock him across the ring. All right, but uh, what Ali did, he employed, which you wouldn't expect of a boxer, the rope dope. And when uh, George Foreman got tired, Ali took him down. That was one of the happiest days in my life. And then in Thriller, the Thriller in Manila, 1975, he fought Joe Frazier in the Thriller from Manila considered one of the greatest boxing matches of all time. That was a war between two men. There were two men in that ring, and they fought three times. Frazier won the first one. Ali won the last two. All right, Ali, and everybody has to die. Ali died uh, June 3rd, June 3rd, 2016, from septic shock. And he had Parkinson's, so everybody saw when he was shaking, this and that. And that disease was exacerbated by all the punches that he took during his boxing career. So he was my hero. He gave black people hope that there would be a better day and that we were a value. We were a value. So that's my take on Ali, and I miss him. Lord bless him. I know he's in heaven. All right. So with that said, I've got a couple of stories that I want to tell you. I was working at the General Motors building in Manhattan back in 70. Five, oh, 77. And it was right across from Central Park and uh, out, out to lunch, actually. And I saw all this dust and yelling and screaming coming from Central Park. And I walked into the park and I saw hundreds of people behind Ali. Muhammad Ali was walking by himself. He didn't have any bodyguards. And you can imagine today. You can't do that today. A man of such stature, he's the most recognized person in the world. He was in the park talking to his people. No bodyguards, extremely friendly, doing demos with his fists. Just amazing thing. And, you know, this guy, he came at the right time in history when we had gone through the Civil War and we were still fighting for our rights. Black Panthers, Martin Luther King, we were in the midst of it. And to have someone like this was a value to his, he was a value to his race. And I love him and I miss him. And like I said, I know he's up there in heaven right now. That's my history, black history story. And I now want to turn it over to Kena Parnum. Thanks, Walter. Um, I think a lot of people feel the same way that you feel about Muhammad Ali, you know, growing up in a household where my parents were actually, especially um, black Muslims. So the importance of the information that he shared 
and the level of black powerness that was needed, very much needed at that time throughout the black community and especially amongst black men, I think is definitely something that has trickled down across generations, even down to today. Um, the person that I'd like to speak about um, is Michelle Obama. Uh, and I say that, you know, there, there are always a lot of people that, you know, resonate when you think about the discussion that you want to have with regards to people that have empowered you or have made change or have fought for civil rights within the past. But I kind of wanted to bring it a little bit forward and talk about something that I think is very much needed today. I feel like the First Lady Michelle Obama, um, she represented equality. She represented a poise. She represented a path that is very possible today. However, we don't see it enough in the Black media. Um, today, what we see in the Black media is a lot of certain types of behaviors as it relates to uh, individuals that are on, let's just say, the Real Housewives of Atlanta, behaviors on love and hip-hop and such. But what we don't see enough of on television is that, um, you know, that poise and that education and that Black, still, still having the Black family type of a lifestyle that the Obamas brought to the public. So for eight years, we saw a middle-of-the-road Black family, right, conduct business, and it's not about the politics, but it's about the representation. They conducted business. They raised a family. They had grandma in the, in the White House to help take care of the kids, right? Making sure that the children would still be protected by someone that is considered our own. Um, but if we look at Michelle Obama from the early start, um, she was born in, in uh, Chicago, right? She was, she was raised up actually on the south side of Chicago, born back in um, January 1964. So she actually just had a birthday a couple of weeks ago on January 17th. She was um, one of two children. She has an older brother. Her family, you know, they were raised just, you know, middle of the road, black families. Um, they were not wealthy. They, um, but they did have, they did seek importance in making sure that their, their children were educated. She was raised at a time in Chicago where there was a lot of white flight going on. Um, in the area, and her parents had decided that they were going to keep the kids there and they were going to make sure that they were educated. She was actually educated in one of the first magnet schools. Uh, I believe she skipped what she did not have to attend the second grade, I think it was. Um, she was also an honor student. She went on to college and she majored in sociality and African American studies. And she further went on to attend Harvard, where she received a law, uh, a law degree. Um, she actually followed her brother to Princeton. Her brother also attended an Ivy League school as well. So that kind of shows when I stated earlier that her parents were very huge in making sure that their kids were properly educated. And we know that proper education, whether it comes from college, trade schools, or just making sure that you're on a continuous learning path, is something that is very important. It's much needed for anyone um, as they seek to, to continue their journey in life and educate and assist and help others. Now, when she became the president, uh, the first lady of the United States, which was definitely new, a new title for a black woman, she graced the covers of the screen. She graced the covers of magazines with such elegance, such poise. Uh, she, you could see that she was definitely um, the backbone of the president, right? He held the top position, but you knew that whenever you saw him, that whether Michelle was standing beside him, she was there with him in spirit, holding him up and making sure that he was well equipped to get the job done. 
Um, she held down not only the household with regards to raising Sasha and Malia, she also held down the household as, I want to say, the first mother. Because her position as the first lady, she was heavily involved in the children of the United States. What is going on with the children of the United States with regards to education and with regards to childhood obesity and the health? So that was pretty much her platform um, throughout the year, her years as the first lady. But not only that, when you look at Michelle Obama, she is she's strong. She's very witty. She's intelligent. She's dedicated. She's a mother. She's very worldly. Um, and I feel like she's not only in touch with the black community, but her ability to connect with people kind of transcends across different races. One of the things that she said before about America um, back in 2007 was this country is suffering from empathy, is suffering from an empathy deficit. If you don't have it in you to be able to walk in another person's shoes, it's going to be difficult for you to move through these problems. What we need as a country is to start caring for one another in a very deep and fundamental way. Another thing that she said is despite any differences we may have, there is so much that unites us as Americans. The American people can handle the truth. They just need to know what it looks like. I think that's very important um, for us to hear with regards to across colors, races, creeds, and genders, because that shows that someone like her who has a very strong traditionally African-American uh, background is able to kind of raise up to the, through the ranks, still understand the plight of her people, still understand what it looks like to create a plan and move forward and move her family forward and bring people with her, but also making sure she doesn't lose sight that we all face a lot of the same challenges across, uh, across different cultures and across different races. So how do we work together as Americans and make sure that we can put our best foot forward and help one another, help each other up. So when they left the, the White House, you know, they still have a lot of different platforms that they are um, operating on. They, um, they tend to, um, I think it's be producers or directors of a couple of different um, documentaries or television series. One that I saw recently was specifically to working. It shows the different types of, um, types of work that people do. Um, some of the behaviors that are associated with it, how it helps people fund their families, and some of the challenges that are associated with it. It really doesn't, it really doesn't um, outline any specific race. It looks at America as a whole and the opportunities and the challenges that we have and how we can continue to move forward. I think that Michelle and, and Obama right now, even though they ran on a platform specific to Yes, We Can, I think that even in their post-presidency, they're still operating on a platform to, to kind of help the country see the opportunities that we have at hand and how we can remain you know, further educated, stay in, um, in good health to be able to achieve those platforms. So I think that you know, when I look at Michelle, like I said, today she is a role model for a lot of people of color. Um, and she's also a role model for people that are not a part of the African-American community, because as I mentioned, she stands with poise, education. She's a mother. She does all of these jobs very well. And she seems to care a lot about the community and various communities to make sure that, you know, people can have the opportunities to move, move forward with their best foot. And if they can't figure out how to do it, to know that there's a community, to know that there's a community out here that can help them um, achieve their goals. So um, that's all that I had as, as a regard, with regards to Michelle. Honestly, I can keep going on because I think she's an amazing woman um, 
and, and an amazing role can. model for today. I know you can. Thank you so <laughs> much, Kena. Thank you very much. And now I'd like to turn to North Carolina's very own uh, Bridget. So how are you, Bridget? I'm doing good. How are you all? All right. We did ours. Now we're waiting for you. And let's close out this show with Williamson, North Carolina. <laughs> Thank you so much. I look forward for this moment to share some of my experiences with you, with the uh, panel tonight. I um, um, was very young, and I wanted to, I haven't partic- particularly picked a particular person, but I also wanted to go in and focus on um, my experiences um, during a time that it was a lot of racial um heat down in the South, and especially the small town of Williamston, my hometown, and to um, kind of like uh, talk a little bit about the unsung heroes, which are the ones that you don't always see uh, names highlighted high, you know, in the big newspaper. But, uh, you know, I as well as you, Uncle Boop, if we grew up in a small town of Williamston, I made a little few notes because I had such a busy day today that... Um, you know, we came from North Carolina, Williamson, North Carolina, and at one point it was a thriving city. They had stores, a black they had the black people had their own stores. They had their own businesses, barbershops, daycare centers. Um, the pool over there in White City. They had um, just different various businesses, and we kept each other going during that time. Um, and those were sort of like people that I really looked up up to those uh, small businesses, Black people that kept each other going, kept families strong and moving on. Um, they kept us, uh, if if a family was hungry, we know we could go to someplace like Dad Harris store uh, and you could put food on the book for credit, you know, and, and you pay a little bit at a time off to get by. Those those are the, the unsung heroes. But there also was a powerful movement. They used to call Williamson um, uh, Little Greensboro. It was known as Little Greensboro, uh, North Carolina, because um, because of so much um, tension there, racial tension there, and so much uh, violence and deaths there. Uh, I think it was brought into Martin Luther King's um, attention that these it was going on in this small town, and that how um, I think his name was uh, Frank Golden Frank, what not Frank Frank was his name uh, Golden Frank. Um, he was in charge of the SCLC, um, the Southern List, uh, Southern uh, Christian Leadership Conference, and uh, Sarah Small. Do you remember her, Walt, Uncle Walter? Do you remember Sarah Small? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay, Sarah Small, uh, uh, Mary Lou, Mary Lewis Mobley. She was my mother's first cousin. All of those ladies were some of the foot soldiers out there. Some of the ladies, Mary, uh, some of them is well known, but you got some that wasn't well known. It was such a hot spot in the civil rights movement during that time. And that uh, uh, Sarah, uh-huh, Mary Lou Morris and the Stein, Stein Bonds. I had him. See, I'm older now, so I got to go yes, back Stalin and really. Bonds, yes. Stalin I Bonds, him. yeah, Stalin, that was yes, him. And Jackie Bonds and then my cousin, um, uh, Lois, Lois Harris, she was all in there. She was one of the foot stoges back then at that time. Since it was a small town, um, they were the young people that got out there and they were marching for uh, equal rights and um, to get away from segregation. But I also can bring out even Coach Boone. I know you remember him. Uh, absolutely, Boone. absolutely. Uh-huh. Yes, they made a movie yes. about him. Um, uh, remember the Titans. And he was uh, 
also they are helping the students to realize that they had to fight for what they wanted to have. So my town, I wanted to focus on my heroes and those were just the town people themselves and no national name, but those little town heroes. So I wanted to say tonight that how I can remember, I can only go on my memories because I was a little girl at that time, maybe about five and six when all that marching was going on and how, um, even my mother, Helen Louise Stokes, uh, my aunt Mary Small, and my um, all my aunties from out of town or family would come out of town doing them demonstrations, and they would get out there and march. And I looked up to them to see how they loved their children enough to get out there and fight and show us as black women and black boys that we got to fight for ourselves. We got to get out there and march for ourselves. So um, they got down there. They got out there in. Uh, they marched and they demonstrate, they raise money. I remember them raising so much money during that time. Uh, the churches would put together uh, fundraisers, selling plates, whatever they had to do to, 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 uh, to bring in the power that they need or get what they needed to help uh, support the marchers out there. And I don't know if you remember um, downtown when they had the march. Um, I want to say the uh, civil rights marchers had marched downtown. I remember that as a little girl, and I remember yeah. uh, remember doing the um, demonstration. How, um, as a child, I could remember um, even my father, Harry Stokes, coming in town, or family members from out of town would always come down to help support the the cause. And uh, you could remember hear them crying and screaming down 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 in the streets. And I can remember um, my brother, my sisters, and my cousins being moved out of the parents that night or that evening couldn't find their children or being moved um, from from jailhouse to jailhouse until uh, Martin Luther King and some of the other civil rights people had to actually find out where they were at. The white officers were moving them from place to place. So those are the kind of, but it was the unsung heroes that I see that made a difference in my life and made a mark in history. They may not never be heard of, but they were definitely the one out there fighting for us, along with those well-known people uh, at that time. Also, I have memories of the schools being integrated. And um, you were, one, were you one of the ones that actually went uh, first to go, first group to go to the integration? Yeah. To integrate yeah, that the was a year. That was the year you had freedom of choice. And that was a gradual rollout. Right, you had freedom of choice. And then uh, a year after that, you had full integration. So I was okay. one of the ones that my, my mom selected to go. And I, I mean, it was good. It was a good experience. But then again, you know, I, you know, a lot of us got beat up, you know, even me, I had to be careful, but you know, yes. that's, that's, that was then. Okay. Good. That was go then. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because I knew my sister, Dina, I'm not Dina, Dina was the one of the youngest group that they sent to the elementary school. She and some of her friends. Um, I just want to add now. Hmm? I just want to add, I'm sorry, but and it took okay. more than one guy to beat me up. It was three, always three. You know, they always fight in groups, right? So that's the yes. only way they got me. Okay. Because I remember my older sister, Babs, going to the uh, middle school herself, high school. You probably was there then. And she said that if it wasn't from our cousin, Jeffrey Harris, those um, those white guys would have beat her, threw her down the steps. So, uh, but y'all yeah, yeah. were brave enough to go. You know, I would see them crying every day coming home. My sister, she's being tears. She don't want to go back. Bells didn't want to go back. Um, and um, but Mom always taught her, "This is for you. This is for your little sisters. You got to do it." 
You got to do yeah. it. So it was you. It was my cousin, Diane. It was a lot of um, family members and neighborhood kids that they had selected. And, and like you said, by choice to go first. And then I believe they brought after you all went first, they brought the white teachers into the um black schools because I didn't have to attend, but I attend, but I did get the white teachers at that time. Um, they were brought okay. to the elementary school when I was two. And um, so um, I always says that once they brought the white teachers over, they moved the black teachers out um, because um, they brought North Carolina had brought in the um, called the North Carolina teachers uh, teacher bar exam. And it became very difficult for black teachers to even pass the bar exam at that time because they weren't taught from black colleges what the white colleges was teaching at the time. So those are the, my heroes that, as I speak before, as I spoke before, that um, stays with my heart. You know, those that those foot soldiers, those are the ones that you're not going to always recognize that got out there and fought right along with the movement that making a change in our history. I also remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do have a story I want to share real quick pertaining to mm-hmm. that 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 time frame. I know that you know they had uh, one swimming pool in town, and it was mm-hmm. the white swimming pool. All right, I don't know if you remember the white swimming pool, but anyway, mm-hmm. it got you know, and down in North Carolina it gets hot, man. It gets hot, especially yes. in eastern North Carolina. It gets hot in the summer. Mm-hmm. All right, mm-hmm. and so we were protesting, you know, that we could not go into the pool, right? So I guess what happened was there was some civil rights act that was, you know, passed that allowed us to, you know, it blocked the owner of the pool from discriminating based on race. So mm-hmm. I never forget it. It was a hot day that day. I had my flip-flops, I had my bathing suit, towel, and everything. I was like eight years old. I'm standing in the line because, I, you know, I was hot. I wanted to get in that pool and swim. Mm-hmm. Do you know what they did? They closed the swimming pool. They closed it. And we never got into that swimming pool. You know, if you were waiting, you'd be standing there today. And this is like 1964. Mm-hmm. They closed the swimming pool. And I was, if that was my, my yeah, that, was, that motivated me to be a good bottle throw. I could throw a bottle, man. I could hit a gap in 30 feet, 40 feet, right outside the head. <laughs> I was good with that Coke bottle. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> you know so what, I, though? I had to look it up really quickly. So you said what year was that around? 1964. And that's the one where it says in June 1964, James Brock dumped acid into the water at the Monsoon Motor Lodge in Florida. So I guess there was a lot of different, I guess people were doing different things to make sure mm-hmm. that they, you know, that's terrible. We, we grew up where there, you know, if you went to the bus station or any place, there yeah. was a white bathroom and there was a colored not black. Color. We had a, we had a, you remember the RNC restaurant. I remember RNC, they used to have a little window on the outside of the building. And I yeah. remember even as a small child that we would order from the outside. And I, I remember right. going, my go grandma, sit down. you could not go in, but they had this glass window and you could peek through as a little girl and you can see all the white people sitting down there eating, just eating. And blacks mm-hmm. on the outside. Same thing. With, I mean, Griffin quit lunch were the same thing. They had one side was was real dingy looking. The best barbecue in the world, though. And uh, the oh, blacks yeah. was on I that side. Have, and then yeah. the restaurant of the whites could go on that side. And then the movie theater was always my best memory. You know, we went upstairs. The black folks, we went upstairs. White That's folks right. We went down. the balcony. Yep. 
in the balcony. And every now and then, the black people always said we got a little upset. And they throw popcorn across the, you know, the balcony, um, you know, popcorn, paper. And the, and the movie attendant would come up and, and show us like, I'm telling y'all, don't do this again now. Don't do that. I'm going to put y'all out. But nobody will say who done it. Occasionally, they have the white police come in, turn the light on. But as soon as the light would go off, everybody just start throwing it again. And then uh, eventually, towards the end of the movie, um, everybody was not everybody because I was a good girl, so I ain't gonna say everybody. But uh, people would, right, um, right, right. would throw a little something over the balcony just to get a little steam out. But nobody yes. never got arrested for that. Nobody. But so was we it a rule? What is a rule? Sorry, was it a rule at that time that you had to be separated or was it was there an opportunity for you guys to sit downstairs? It's just that nobody the, realized they could do it. There was no opportunity. It was There was no opportunity. It was segregation. Okay. okay. Flat, flat segregations. That's, that's right. That's right. Flat segregation. People contained. No obligations whatsoever. Right. No choice. No. That, that was you. That was you. I remember. We had to fight for that. Oh, but yeah. it's strange how it's not so much strange, but how different it was in the north. Of course, I wasn't around, but when I hear it, like my mom, right, and she lived mm -hmm. in the south, and she was she was born and raised up here in the north. Mm -hmm. And when she lived in the south, and she'd meet people that would, were her age, was her age. Like my mom's going to be seventy two next month, but you know, she'd have conversation with people around her age, and they're like, "Yeah, you remember we used to pick cotton, and remember we used to do," and she's like, "Remember what?" <laughs> and so it, you just don't realize how different it was in the north and the south. Even in the 1960s. Well, that's why a you had the great migration. I think, yeah, a lot of people. Yes. Right. Sometimes I believe a lot of people migrated um, up north just to get away from some of the south, southern um, racism and restriction and segregation. But I still feel that they still felt some of it. That um, as they move in up north, they may not get it as brutal or as strong force mm -hmm. as it was in the south, but they did experience some up north. Well, that was one of the things when I came to New York, I took the trailway, all right, the trailway bus. You know, that was so exciting. I used to see that 815 New York Express. Mm -hmm. And I was riding on that. And, and I'll, I'll never forget, you know, leaving. That was my goal. I was, when I was 12, fortunately, I had an uncle that lived in Brooklyn. But since I was 12, I wanted to leave North Carolina. I could not wait. It was such a boring place. And then I had one of my, my, my stepfather, and I didn't live with him. I lived with my mom, raised me, but I used to go to my mother's house. And he would tell me, he said, yeah, you know, you should get a job at uh, Whitney, whatever company. And what they do is, they, first they'll start you out in the yard, you know, picking up, cleaning up out in the yard. And if you do a good job, you'll be promoted right to the factory floor. All right? I could not comprehend that. I did not understand that. And I wasn't going to do that. Okay, and that just wasn't me. Another thing, thing happened to me that I like to share in this part is me and my friends, we used to love the swimming holes. Anywhere we could find a swimming hole, because they already closed the, the, the public swimming pool. So out near the, the football stadium, you know, where they're doing, uh, with the bulldozer digging holes and stuff, there was a hole and it had rained in it and it was just pretty. It was like a greenish color. It was just beautiful. You know, we were in there. And the cops, when it, we saw the cops coming, right? This is in 60. So when the cops came, they got out of the car, and one guy heard them say, let's get a fishing rod. They, under, cause we were going underwater, trying to hide underwater. We'd come up with a little breath, and we'd go back down, try to hide. 
They came over there and said, you don't come out of that water, boys. I'm going to stick this rod and reel up your behind. Well, he didn't say it, so, you know, that guy did. It was worse. But anyway, we're like, we're little boys, single digit in terms of age. So we got in, they put us in the back of the, of, of the uh, squad car, and they were driving. And one of them said, you know what we should do? We should take these boys out to the wood and shoot them. Nobody will miss them. You know what I said? Don't tell my mom, please. Don't tell my mama. <laughs> I was so scared of my mom. I wasn't scared of them. Point I completely I was, missed. <laughs> I, I was going to get a beat down. I know it. But anyway, they took us down to the, and then they wouldn't allow us to put our clothes on. We were butt naked. What? Butt naked. They took us to the, to the police station. We had to walk from the squad car into the police station, butt naked. It was like four of us, all right? And you, I don't know whether you remember Brad Bagley. Yes, I all right? remember him. Yeah, he was, he was a deputy police officer. They turned me over to him, and you know what? He gave me a beating with the police belt. All of us got a beating on our behind from Brad Bagley. And then the only thing that would come out of my mouth was, don't tell my mama. Don't tell mom, please. Don't tell my mama. And that was, I was more afraid of her than I was of them. All right. Do you feel like that, I got a that, question? Do you happened. feel like Brett Bagley did that to uh, uh, to protect you or to let you know we can't do it right now in this society? I think it was a, it was a mixture of both. It was both. Okay. He did it to protect us, and he had you know, and to demonstrate to them that there was some punishment. You know, they mm-hmm. had to be meted mm-hmm. out. And that belt, man, uh, you don't want to. That was one of those utility belts too. Wow! But after we got That's out of there, an- went home. That was an interesting question, Bridget, because I would have never thought about that. I, I was when you asked the question, I'm like, what do you mean to protect them? But it and then when Walter, when you said to show them that there was some sort of consequence, I mm-hmm. it's like my mind is completely closed off mm-hmm. to like just not even closed off, but illiterate, right? To some of the things that happened down there and even maybe some of the ways that it could have been protection. Where mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, we want to show them that you can't do this and we can't have it become a thing. But maybe that guy was like, we're not going to persecute them, you know? Don't forget, he was the only black cop. Yes. He made was, oh, so he was black. Cop. Okay, got yeah, it, got he it. Was black. He was the only yeah. black. And I think he was the he was first, the actually. He was, he the, was first the first black cop. He was Absolutely. the first black cop in the town. Um, oh, the, okay. So that makes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. He was the first black wow. black cop in the town. But And I also, um, you know, I kind of have to go back a little bit on my... Um, unsung heroes and, and I'm I'm grateful that I was able to be around that time to appreciate the little people that made a big difference to get us where we got today. Um, you know, my grandmother used to always say um too much is given, much is expected. And so we have to I feel like today we have to teach the younger generation that they have to give back in order to make a difference. This is a fight and a struggle to keep first of all to keep our history. But to continue um, uh, building our community, they have to um, continue to educate themselves, for one thing. Um, and they have to continue to support each other and support the community uh, and become the heroes, the unsung heroes that our parents came doing that struggle for us. We still, we did, we got some ways, but we still got a long ways to go. I feel personally. Oh, we got to wait. We only... If you look at a, 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 a hundred mile race, we only get down to maybe one and a half miles. Mm-hmm. All right, mm-hmm. and that, and, nine, and people nine, don't realize it, but we got to step up to the plate more. We got, step up I mean, we we're, we're on the backs of our ancestors, you know, 
from that period of time. Yep. We're standing on that, their backs, but we're not reaching for the next level. And that's that's very right. that's what this show is all about. That's what the World Weekly is all about. But do you okay? do you think that reaching for the next level, like this is a pivotal point where there is a need for community, valuable community, not community in so far as just saying the culture? Because the culture is a lot of different things. There's a lot of segments of the culture moving in different directions. But when we talk about community, we look at other races, right? We look at the Jews. We look at the Chinese. We look at other com- communities that can build together. And I, I think, Walter, it may have been a conversation you and I had that was similar to looking at Atos, right? The African descendants of slaves as a tribe. Because mm-hmm. there are certain things that our families have felt, you know, um, negatively that has impacted potential opportunities. But I I think, right, and this is very subjective, maybe one of the reasons why um, people of color don't band together as much as other areas is because it's possible, and this is just a theory that I have, it's possible that when the slaves became officially free and you're trying to figure out, okay, you know, I have my family, I have my immediate family, how do we become productive members of society or how do we just stay alive right because that was the introduction of the Jim Crow era as well um, so if, if we're looking at let's just say when the slaves were freed and they're now looking to provide um, you know provide a life for their families through most likely the only means that they knew how which was farming and other things then the Jim Crow laws came into play so now you have to worry about your husband your your, your wives your sons, you know, working and um, being thrown into jail for small infractions that never existed. So maybe that's when like that focus on family, your immediately family started to hone in a lot stronger. And you're looking at, I need to make sure I can protect my family by any means possible. And it's, it's possible that the community also looked at it like we need to protect our community by any means possible because of these Jim Crow laws. But maybe people started to splinter off and become a little bit selfish, specific to their individual families, and stopped working together as a community, where now it's very hard for Black people to work and join forces as a community as other races are able to. That's just a thought that I'm kind of working through in my head, because it's like we have so many people of color, and a lot of times when when you have disadvantaged um, groups, they tend to band together. You know, you're bartering, you're banding together, you're watching each other's kids. You need to go do something and get something done. I got you, you know, because I know I'm going to need you in the future. It seems like that that style of community is becoming more disparate. I'm not saying that it doesn't exist because there are a lot of great people helping people. But when we look at it as a unit and take that unit and start having, you know, we take that unit and that mindset and start developing business ideas and business plans and really growing um, the tribe, for lack of a better term, the same way the Jews and the Chinese are able to. You are correct. We are a tribe. We are unique in this world. Okay. The African-American is very unique. All right. And, you know, for us to come together, the powers that be, they don't want that. They're going to do everything in their power to keep us the way we are, splintered, okay? But we have to come together. If we are to advance to, as a group, as a tribe, then we have to come together. And Another that's why thing I'm I... harking on this tribal thing. 
we have to start looking as a, at ourselves as a tribe, like everybody else. You got your Japanese, you got your Chinese, you got your Jewish people. I mean, and you got your, your white people here. They are a tribe. And one thing I, you know, that, that, that dawned on me one day is that I had never heard of a black think tank. There may be some out there. If they are, I don't hear anything from them. Okay. So, you I know, there's a group, there's a group I've been um, digging at, looking into a little bit more of, and maybe we can t- figure it out, called The Gathering Spot. They are um, like a black networking organization um, in a lot of prominent areas. I believe it's like Atlanta, New York, maybe Chicago, L.A. And it's more of like a private membership um, that is focused on community collaboration, culture, connecting people together. Um, you know, advancement of of the of the purpose of you know African Americans, and I'm learning more about it. Um, which I think it it's probably doing a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's Chicago, Detroit, Houston, New York, Charlotte as well. Um, I was recently starting to dig a little bit more to understand because if there, you know, we know that there are a lot of Black organizations that are for the advancements of of Black people and businesses. We do know that that exists, but it would be awesome if we had a list of all of them and what the maybe the mission statements and value statements and the differences between some of them are. Like I know I used to work for um, Shea Moisture at the time when Richard Ludennis had just sold it to Unilever. And one of the things that he did was he, he sold uh, Shea Moisture to Unilever and immediately turned around and purchased um, Essence Magazine. And he said that he wanted to purchase Essence magazine because it was time that that magazine remained back into the hands of people of color so we can tell our own stories. Another thing he did at that time was opened up a, was it a scholarship or a grant called New Voices, where um, regardless of the type of black business that you had, you can put in an application for assistance. Now, and if you were selected, they would provide business mentorship. You know, they would provide um, education, help you to learn how to grow your business and connect you with some of the um, some of the right people to make sure that you can be successful. And not kind of just not like they, they didn't give you a grant and drop you and, le- you know, to go about your business and figure it out. But they provided a full service um, kind of full service business opportunity to make sure that you can you can succeed. So we know that there are things out there. I'm wondering if maybe there's an opportunity for us to pool all of the resources in one place and identify the offerings that they have and where they sit so that people have access to this information. Okay, cool. And I'll send it. There's also another thing called the, uh, that I recently joined called the uh, National Society of Black Engineers, which has a lot of informa- good information in it, too. I do want to go back to the fact that we are a tribe. I want people to know and think about this. I mean, I'm not telling you. You know, we're not, you know, like the sheep of Donald Trump. They just follow him. They follow him right over the cliff. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about coming together. And if you look at the hierarchy of what we should be prioritizing, and I know a lot of people prioritize God, family, and what they don't they don't prioritize the, the tribe the tribe should be up there with with you know right out the family or be you know god family tribe or you can use them interchangeably tribe could go at the top depending on who you are but we is have to po- start thinking of the tribe is it's it possible that we have together. only way that we see when we use the word that, tribe 
I, I see tribe as um, from my own personal experiences growing up in a small town. Mm-hmm. I saw that more as a tribe, uh, a community. But I yeah, think it I, was I, a tribe I, back then. It was a tribe, tribe because yeah. we looked out for each other. We grew each other. You had store people right. that had stores that fed each other, or our money went back into the local stores, the black stores and the 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 the, the black cleaners or the seamstress or the, the the hair salons or the beauty shops or uh so our resources was Taxi going back service, and then all that kind of stuff. And yep. when it come to even down to the point as mentoring to our children, we I mean in the black schools back then you they made sure we spoke the English right. They made if you didn't know it, you had to stay after school until you got it. Um, that's right. And that's what I saw as a tribe, a group of people who loved their culture, who loved who being black and who loved each other and wanted to lift each other up. Because if it was somebody on my street or a single mom on my street, they didn't have food. That's all they needed to hear because the sisters in the communities was bringing food, clothes, everything that they needed. Uh, yeah. There was a widow or a single mom, the neighbors that had a a farm or chicken. Uncle Luke used to have chicken in the back. If he 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 had his garden, well, he brought all the people that needed some collards or some cabbages or carrots. Same as our my grandmother did. So that was a tribe. We were using our own resource. I felt like within the tribe. Yeah, to that's help what we were. We were self self sufficient, mm-hmm. and a lot of places in this country were self sufficient until they built the expressways and I-95, the interstates, they built it right over the communities. Mm-hmm. All right? But do you think it has did. something to do with when we lost the village? Absolutely. Right? So I'm, I, I'm, Absolutely. I'm born in the late 70s, and I remember I grew up, and it was still, it took a village to raise a child, right? Anybody mm-hmm. on you in the block, on, on the block could fuss you out if you were misbehaving. I mean, it wasn't me. It was my sister with her mouth. But, you know, anyone could fuss at you. Anyone, you know, there was no such thing as, at least, I mean, it could have been somewhere else, but there was no such thing as someone saying, who, you know, are you talking like that to my child kind of a thing. So, mm-hmm. you know, today, you know, people are looking at the teachers not to say that teachers are perfect but like their kid could be doing something wrong and it's like the teacher's fault it's don't talk to my kid that way you know don't look at my kid that way and it it's it's insane and so it's like one of the things with my my kids um my oldest so I have one that's 29 and 23 when they were younger and they had friends they knew who could come in the house and who couldn't come in the house you couldn't bring an unruly child in my house because I wasn't having it. And I used to tell their friends, as soon as you cross over this threshold the, at the door, you become my child. I'll love you like your mind and you could get it like your mind as well. <laughs> you know? Yeah. True, and so true. it's, it was in the back I, of the and it's yeah. a loss for that. Like I used to go to my son's um, football games in the middle school in the high school and you could hear, you know, the kids are cheering on, but then they're like behind you in the bleachers cursing and you turn and look at them and it's like, oh, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And it's funny because, you know, my ex used to say he used to be shocked that the kids would apologize in my neighborhood because he's a cop in the city. And he was he was like, goodness gracious, if I was in the city, the kids, you turn around and look at the kids and they'll be cursing you out still. At least the kids are stopping here. But I'm like, yeah, but when I was growing up, you never curse. You would never fix your lips to curse in the presence of an adult. You I know, couldn't even say so. fool. I couldn't <laughs> say lie. I couldn't say fool. Remember mm-hmm. that? Yeah, you remember that, right? We couldn't yeah. say so certain like, things. Didn't say anything. So I've always heard of that. 
Um, I, I've always heard of that, but I didn't. I don't feel like I saw that a lot here. But I, but I've always heard that you couldn't say a lie, you couldn't call somebody a fool, you couldn't call somebody stupid. Right. Um, I feel like there were some other things that you you kind of couldn't say. But I was like a quiet kid, so maybe it just never. Yeah, if I ask my sister, there's probably a lot that she wanted to say, which is why she always got in trouble for her mouth. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. um, but, but we did you, the uh, village. The village was like that. Um, the village or the tribe was like that. If I would walk from school, I was a good girl like you. Hey, I'm gonna take my props. I was a good girl. <laughs> but you know, yeah, if you walk from school, I didn't see her. She was so, she was so nice and quiet. I didn't yeah, even see her. I, you couldn't even see me, but if, if my other sister might be loudmouth and some of the neighborhood cussing, you might have your Miss Minnie Bass or somebody come out there. Y'all better stop because I'm going I'm to get a hold of you. And then I'm going to tell your mama and then your grandmama going to get you too. So that's how it mm-hmm. was. Our village, our tribe was, you know, in the neighborhood. So yeah. we helped um, rear our children as a village, as a tribe. You helped bring up everybody's children on that, on that Absolutely. street. Absolutely. Absolutely. And don't get a bad report card. Mm-mm. All right. You, everybody you in the everybody. town knew you had a bad report card. Yeah. You before you even got home, everybody knew it and you and, oh, and wow. mom, your mother would be standing in that door waiting for you. Let me see that mm-hmm. report card, boy. What, what what happened? You get in there, take your clothes out. I'm not gonna beat you now. I'm not gonna beat the clothes that I bought. You go to bed, I'll get you later. And that would be and they a lot of oh, man. You go to sleep and you get to whooping. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they come in there. <laughs> Like a monster, man. <laughs> you Wait, remember you that old school? I forget. You know, and it's funny because now as a parent, I used to wonder because I didn't get a whole lot of spankings. I really didn't. My, even though my kids don't believe my mom when she says it, she they're like, Yeah, no, she didn't really get a spanking too much. She was she was a good kid. But you're like, I I, I developed a mouth as a teenager, so now my kids know me as an adult, and they're like, There's no way she didn't get beatings as many beatings growing up. But the thing is, I do remember like your parents sending you to your room and why couldn't they just come and spank you? Why did, why were you in there for hours going through anxiety and heart palpitations, wondering when they're finally going to come in? So I guess that was like from a back in the day kind of thing. And then you fall asleep and now you got to wake up. (laughs) Believe it or not, guys, is that my kids, I never beat them. All right. It was always go to bed, go to your room. Or this and that. I only they only got beat one time, and that was because I came home, then my wife came home, and they were not around. We were looking for them. All right, they left the house without permission. Even though my mother, they told their grandma, my mother-in-law, that they were going outside, but she didn't hear them or she wasn't paying attention. But I'm looking for my kids. I'm thinking somebody took them, and you know how you know it's still the same way. They kidnapped my kids. I was, I was really man. I was mad, mad, mad. I was scared first. Then when I saw them, that relief came. But then the anger came that they walked out of this house without my permission, without telling anybody. And they were like maybe eight, nine, ten, somewhere in that neighborhood, right? In, in elementary school, I know they were. Yeah. And I got my belt and I beat them. And my, my mother-in-law said, you got to stop. Stop hitting them. Don't hit them anymore. Don't hit them anymore. And then I looked at them and I said, okay. I mean, I started crying. And, I, you know, not in front of them, but, you know, a little bit after, I said, I'll never hit my kids again. And I did. From that point. You know what? I one think we got away from that eventually as society changed. Uh, we kind of got away from the way our parents disciplined us. We got into the, the new... Uh, um, 
way of psychological way or therapy way, whatever we want to label it, of talking to them first, which is effective, put them in this punishment, but you still hold, always says, hold that, hold, hold the rod back for when you're going to really need it if you have to. So talking is effective and sitting them down, taking things away, but sometimes you, you might have to resort to the old fashioned touch. I put it that way. My kids used to think that I. My kids used to think. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, don't forget that even in school, we got the paddle. We got the paddle. Maybe I would. Yeah, you had to hold your hand out, and the guy and the teacher would spell that word right. Pop you right in the hand like five, ten times, you know, till you drop to your knees. Sometimes I I mean, I always get. I was a troublesome guy. You know, I was troublesome, so I'm always getting a beating. All right. But you know what? I, I thought of recently in the last couple of months and I had this conversation with my son because like I say, you know, he's 29 now and over the last couple of years as he's been nearing 30 and getting more mature, we have like a lot of adult conversations. Now he doesn't have kids, but it dawned on me, I said, you know, the, 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 the African-American community has almost always pri- almost prided themselves on the style of spanking and discipline that was given to the children. But when you think about it with slavery not being so long ago, I think that we have been mimicking what the slave masters did to us, right? They would whip and spank. And not to say that it was to the same abusive extent, but if, if, if slaves only saw getting whipped and spanked as a form of discipline, then when they became free and they're trying to discipline their kids or make sure that their kids don't fall subject to the Jim Crow laws, they're now whipping and spanking their kids like the slave masters did. So, I think that there's a level of mimicking that's being done that where it definitely, you know, kind of using the rod for lack of a better term helps in certain areas. But I agree with like what Bridget was saying, use different methods. But spare the rods for the child. That's what I I grew up on. That was a philosophy behind beating. And not just that, that was not just, uh, you know, African-American thing. That was all, all folks beat their kids. They got into trouble. There was Mm -hmm. discipline. Right. And yeah, it was right. all in my house discipline. It was discipline. Yes, it was in my household. My mom was, and she was single. Uh, my mom used a little bit of both. You got that whooping first, but sometimes she would take things away from us. Or she's saying, "You ain't, you're not going to be on the phone for this week. You you can't talk to no friend friends that this week, or you can't go out." And that and I, and that was just effective that you couldn't go outside and play see your yeah. friends. So. I would say maybe some so that we telling, mimic slave owners and some, but I think our black people, we use it to protect our children, whereas slave owner uses it to have authority over us. But maybe our moms. Yeah, there was yeah, no malice behind it. But there is All a right. level of, and I'm, I'm going to challenge our people because there is a level of authority that we as people of color tend to have and require over the children. And it's, it's, and, and, and again, it, it, I have been an authoritative per- parent, but, you know, like my son's 29 and I've got a 14-year-old that's the youngest. So I feel like I've been parenting for a very long time now. It's time for this to come, this everyday parenting to come to an end. But, you know, as you kind of look at how I parented before and now I kind of do see some things. Like even though my oldest kids, they got spanked, they got things taken away. As a matter of fact, they used to think that I bought things for them so that I could have it to take it away. Maybe a little bit. But I also used to make them write letters. They would have to write a front and, pay, front and back letter, um, handwritten. It could not be double-spaced. When they did something wrong, it would have to be a paragraph about what they did. 
a paragraph about why they thought it was okay. And then a paragraph to say, what could you have done differently? Because I used to want, I've got a, I've got a whole box full of letters um, because I wanted them to be able to think about, you know, think through the process and, and, and what they did wrong. And even if you feel like you shouldn't have gotten spanked for it, but what could have been done uh, differently? You know, they've had, I didn't do too much time out in the corner. There was, you know, some grounding going on. I know growing up when I was a kid, I would take getting a, if I had, if I had a choice between getting grounded and a spanking, I'll take a spanking because like you get it, it's one and done. I'm not trying to be in the room next week still. <laughs> I'm laughing. The reason I'm laughing and, at and actually, I would probably take the spanking too. Yeah. But that depends. But, but, but you if know, you remember when it, my day growing up, if it's, if a student in the classroom did something wrong, you did have to stay back and write on that board. I will not do this. I will learn to do this. So there was yeah, a I form remember of that. I forgotten about that. So one of the things I was going to get at is when I was telling my son about, you know, the thought of, you know, how we spank our kids. And then he said, you know, cause you know, these things come much later. He was, he was like, ma, I think that we should raise, people should raise their kids the way you raised us. He was like, there was a lot of love in the house. He said, but you also taught us what it was to be accountable, to feel rejection. He's like, but we knew that you loved us. And I was like, how many years did we? I was like, all right, I'm waiting for your sister to come up. <laughs> you know. I just want to share one more thing, and then we're going to close out. Is that uh, uh, the times you used to get, I used to get a whooping. I don't know about you, but Bridget. Uh, and I know, Sakina, you already said that you never got a whooping, right? No, I've gotten them before. Oh, you did get them? Okay, good. That's good. That's why you're the way you are. I got them because other people was the reason why I got them. Well, nothing I did. That's what I was about to say. I could probably count on one hand and probably not fill up the hand on, on if I've gotten spanked because of something I did. But mm-hmm. if it was something like you, you know, that whole um, you are your brother's sister's keeper nonsense? Yeah. 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 Yeah, no. I got one. Okay. I got one because of my older sister and my brothers, not my oldest, but my sister's siblings was in my mother's house when my oldest cousin, Joan, she don't mind me calling her name, was dating her boyfriend. And we was peeping under the curtain and I accidentally pulled the curtain down trying to see what they were looking at. <laughs> Boy, and, you're uh, spy, man, really. She's quiet. <laughs> And so grandma, just, be on my team, they, we just supposed to be in there, but I felt like I got most of the licks, you know, but um, it was those <laughs> kind of things. I'm following the older siblings. So, I didn't like discipline. So, but just, I know I, I wanted Let to do a little corporal punishment. That's what we're talking about. Yes. Right? Is mm-hmm. that Ma always told me to go outside and get, bring her a switch. Right, so I had to go out there, and I had to be—I had to look up at the tree, or look at the bush, and she would tell me, "Don't bring anything small. You don't want me to go out there and get it." So I'm standing there, I'm crying, I'm trying to make a decision. You know, it was a—it was—it was a heavy decision to make, right? So mm-hmm. I would go, you know, get more than probably what she needed. So this one particular day, I don't know if you've seen those those long—not uh, vines—they—they're like weeds or like. Bamboo shoot, but not bamboo, but they were mm-hmm. long. We used to make bow and arrows out of it. But they had a whip. They would, they would be big in the, at, at, at the beginning, and then they would taper down to like a skinny end. And I made a mistake of getting that switch. When I took it inside, Ma started beating me. Then I ran. And it was just like somebody with a, a, a whip that, that 
tip of that that switch hit me in the back of the neck. The tip, only the tip, and I fell backwards. I never forget it. I was running. I was about she to said, say it took you down, right? It took me okay. down. I fell backwards. So, listen, yeah, you don't mess with the mamas in the tribe, okay? They know how to handle a switch, right. a little one, a long one. Don't matter, but don't mess with the mamas in the tribe because they can they can there catch you. you. Don't think you can outrun them. You th- don't and don't ever go out there and bring them the wrong size switch. Get the one there that you, you they yeah. want because they're gonna learn how there to use go. that. And I just wanted to say, as far as the the, the tribe is concerned. I felt like those women helped discipline us um, and kept us where we need to be and safe in life, to prosper in life, to get the things that we could st- and stay focused. Uh, I think to children today. I, I think uh, done without them. <laughs> yeah. See, my brother, right? It was my, my brother, my sister, and I. We're all about two years apart. I'm the youngest. You know, my parents had a line, you know, especially my mom. She had a line. My sister and I understood where the line was. My brother knew where the line was. He liked to tap dance on it and on the other side. So we would see what happens when you get close to the line and cross over it. So my sister and I kind of, you know, we did things a little differently to stay out of trouble. But looking at him getting in trouble was enough for us to realize we didn't really want to, we didn't want that life. All right. So anyway, we need to close out the show. I do want to say first off that I thank you. I thank Kina. I, I thank Bridget. And uh, it was a great show, all right? And our audience will be listening to this, guys. Let me just say that we appreciate our audience and we try to do shows that are relevant to them, all right? To our tribe, that's why we do this show, all right? For the benefit of our tribe and our future tribe, you know, our kids, our great-grandkids. I'm a great-grandfather, so I can say this. And our great, 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 great grandfather. One good thing about doing a show like this is it's going to be out there for eternity. It's going to always be in the ether. So your kids can come back and listen to how you thought. You know, how did grandpa think about this? How did great, 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 great grandpa Walter, you know, handle that situation? We, we make history. We're making history here. This is going to be laid down. It's documented. It's always going to be out there for our, our, our posterity and our legacy. It's going to be there. And I do want to say, guys, whoever's listening to this show, I need you to click on that subscribe button. Whatever platform, whether it be Apple, Google Play, or Spotify, whatever. One good thing about the Walt Weekly is the fact that we are on every major streaming platform. And we also have our website, www.thewaltweekly.com. Go there. Check us out. Make comments. I need you guys to like. Don't like me on Facebook. All right? That's good. You can like me on Facebook, but also like me on the podcast itself. All right? Give us, rate us on, on Apple. All right? This is our we, fifth year. Five years. And we're growing. I, 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 I want to thank all y'all guys that listen. But tell your, 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 you know, your, your friends, your family, spread the word because we want to get the truth out there. All right, there's too many diversions and, and a lot of nonsense that goes on. But we add value by bringing forth the truth, by bringing folks that are living this life and their experiences and what they face. And we just want them to know that we appreciate them. But please, for the Walk Weekly, if you like the show, subscribe, like, tell your friends, 
disseminated all over, all right? Because we are all over. We are global. People listen to us from Oman, Saudi Arabia, Brazil. We are a global podcast. So with that said, I want to thank everybody. Again, I want to return to my, my guests, well, actually my co-host, all right? And, and, and I want to just give a shout out to Michelle, and she'll be back soon. But Kina, thank you. Bridget, slash bot, slash my niece, thank you so much. I love you both. Y'all guys have a great day. Thank you. You too. All right. You bye too. Bye.